Welcome back to the Hungry Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Moose, and we're here to get rid of the starving artist mentality by talking with hungry, driven, passionate artists and hearing their recipes for success each week. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hi, and thanks for tuning in. I'm talking with Kip Knight today. He's a writer and director who's made a number of different short films, particularly in the horror genre. So, of course, this conversation, we talk all about that, as well as the creative process and leaving a legacy, as well as indie filmmaking versus uh, working for a studio. He spent a number of years as a PA. And also, what does that look like on the studio side as a writer-director? So, lots of fun in this conversation. I really hope you enjoy my talk with Kip. <laughs> Hello, Kip Knight. How are you doing? Oh, I am doing well. How are you? Oh my gosh, I'm so good. I'm so glad that you said yes to joining me here on the podcast. Thank you. I mean, who can say no to you? Like, let's be real. <laughs> Aww, too kind, too kind. Well, I am so excited to talk to you about everything filmmaking. It's conversations that we were just saying before hitting record that we've we've had this conversation before where, um, you know, I'm starting to get my foot into the filmmaking world now and I love learning from you who's who's been doing it and, and creating your own voice. So I would just like to ask, um, let's start from the very beginning. When, when did you move to LA? Oh, okay. So I moved to LA in 2016 from Chicago and uh, it was from, from college and the way that works is uh, your last semester you get to apply to be in a program where they, if you get accepted, you go to LA, you finish your semester in LA and then that's supposed to set you up for this like amazing career. <laughs> but, da, da, da. <laughs> oh, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, I've been here for, is this seven years now? Is my math right? Seven? I can't math either. What'd you say? 2016? Yeah, seven, four, yeah. Three, yeah. Yeah, yes, seven years. It'll be eight in January. Can you believe we're almost close to January? Jesus. Ooh, I know. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, that's exciting. And since then, what, I mean, I know you've done some PA work. Was that the first thing that you were doing when you came out here then? Remind no. me. Remind, <laughs> give me a refresher. So let's go through the journey okay, of Kip Nights, you know. Uh, <laughs> when I first moved here, uh, I saved up a little bit of money so that I could have, you know, the semester to focus on school and try to attain what they were preaching to us, uh, which was a job in the industry and or an internship. Um, but unfortunately, my class, there was only one person that got an internship right out of the program. Mm -hmm. So I applied to work at Arclight that no longer exists because of, I don't know, sad. But um, yeah, so I worked there for two and a half weeks. And on a shift, I got a call from the PGA. They're like, hey, we're looking for an intern. Can you come in? And I was like, yeah. And it would have worked out with my schedule so I wouldn't have to quit Arclight. Yeah. But then, um, so back in the day, I thought I wanted to be a manager slash an agent. Oh. <laughs> no. But I uh, applied for an internship just off a whim at a management company. And after my call with the PGA, they literally called me and said, hey, can you intern here for us? We're looking for someone to cover our front desk. And I was like, okay, I'm out of here. Goodbye, Arclight. <laughs> I love you guys when I'm done. <laughs> so um, from there, I interned at the PGA and I interned at, uh, it was Luba Rockland Entertainment. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I, I interned there and um, 
the PGA was great. Uh, you got to go to the all of the events and things like that. You got to meet the people coming through. I mean, obviously, it's still an office and you have to work and do what you have to do. So you can't really just connect or talk to the people that come in because we have some big people come in. I mean, like from A-list actors who are also, you know, doubling up as producers Producing. on these projects nowadays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then all of these in-betweens. And it's like my mind was just like, oh, my God, there's such and such. Oh, my God. There's like, oh, OK. Keep your cool. Keep your cool. Um, and that was great. And then with Luba Rocklin, um, I quickly learned that I did not want to be a manager, but I did appreciate the knowledge that came with interning for a management company to see what it's like to get an actor an audition, to even yeah. take an actor on as a client and all of the things that go into like, you know, office management, rolling calls, all of that good jazz that everybody's so afraid of mm -hmm. moving to LA. So I got to experience that. And from there, through those connections, I met a woman who at the time, I was really big in VR because, you know, back in VR was like this really big deal. Um, and she was shooting a VR short and she was like, hey, I remember you said that you like VR. And That's I know that so you haven't cool. had an experience on set. Yeah, it was it was really cool. Um, she was like, come on to PA for me. And I was like, oh, God, I got my one opportunity. So I went in there and I was just like helping out wherever I could. You know, I was just running around doing whatever I could. And she was so impressed by it. She was like, oh, my God, I love your work ethic. I love how you were just so gung-ho about everything. And then she gave my resume to someone else. And I got my first set PA gig on the show Masters of Sex. And then from there, my resume was sent from that show. I had a couple of day-playing spots from Jane the Virgin. And then that led me to, um, what was it? Scandal and Grey's Anatomy that I worked because uh, they have the same crew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they interchange them on the days they shoot. So I worked on those, and then I realized that if I was going to be on set, I wanted to be in a more creative space. I didn't want to be a PA because you know, as a PA, you're just really just doing the the man work, and most of that when you start out is locking up locations and making sure that you don't have people from the outside interfering with the process of shooting. And I realized that I wanted to be somewhere more creative. So my boss at the time gave me the advice that if you want to be creative, whether you want to write or direct or something, your best bet is to go into the office because that way you get to meet the people who are creating the shows. You get to meet the people who are writing the shows. And that's what I did. And that led me onto a show called The Rookie. And I was on The Rookie for the first season. Was that office then, PA? Like, yes, as an office PA, okay. yes. Yes, yes. And the funny story about that show is... Um, you know, when you're starting out, everything is so sporadic. You know, they say the first year you're, you're in a trance because, oh, my God, I'm in L.A. Yeah. That second year is like, oh, shit, I'm in L.A. and I have a job. <laughs> so that's where I was. I was in that second year like, oh, wait, can I curse? I'm sorry. Yeah, please. Go for it. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, shit, I'm in my second year. I have no job. What am I going to do? I'm freaking out. So I took a job at a um, restaurant as a host, and I hated it because I just felt like I did that in Chicago mm. when I was in school. And in my head, the only thing I'm trying to do is go forward and not go backwards. So for a minute, I felt like I was just on this backwards trail. Mm -hmm. So I was like dreading going to work. I was only getting paid 200 every two weeks. I was like, oh, this is not sustainable. Yeah. I'm literally driving to work and making enough money to put gas just to drive to work. Yeah. Um, but the, my boss that I was working with, I met him on a set on another short film. And that's how I got the restaurant gig. And um he was really cool. He understood, like, you know, what I really wanted to do. He knew that this job was just for a, a way to make some means or to get some type sure. of income in my pocket. So uh, my friend was like, hey, Kip, I have uh, someone who's looking for an office PA. Do you want to apply? And I was like, yeah. And once again, I have never had the experience of an office PA. So I didn't know if I needed to have, like, extensive yeah, like, yeah, credits. Yeah. So I was nervous. I was like, oh, my God, what do I say? 
my friend's like, dude, I don't know. Just go in there and just be you. I was like, okay, that doesn't help me. Like, tell me what, like, what do I need to <laughs> know? <not> answers. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I went to the interview and I walked into the office. They were at Warner Brothers. Um, and I was already kind of wild because I had never been to Warner Brothers. So I walk in and I'm so nervous. I'm sweating my ass off. And I get, I'm like, okay, calm down before I walk in. I walk in and all the PAs are there. They introduce themselves, whatever. And I go into this interview and right off the bat, they say, we know you don't have experience. And I was like, oh shit. Okay, so I they just found me out. They, they found it. So, and I was like, okay, quick, what do I do? I say, yes, I don't, but I'm a really quick learner. I pick up really fast. Um, and I think that's the most important thing is to be able to adapt to the changes that come with this industry. And, you know, I, I just went in there like, okay, if this is meant for me, I've been praying for it, I've been asking for it, then it'll happen. And if it doesn't, then I just have to pick up the pieces and keep rolling. I love that. So I, I kid you not, Caitlin, I had a shift that night at the restaurant. <laughs> I'm like already. I'm like I sent an email to them. Thank you for spending the time to interview with me. I feel like I can learn a lot from you. Blah 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 blah. Yada yada yada. I go to work. Think okay. I'm checking my phone in between guests, seeing them and whatever. Yeah. I'm like no email. Damn. Maybe they're not gonna hire me. So I'm like okay, whatever. Caitlin, I clocked out at nine o'clock. I got an email at nine o five when I was on the highway yeah. saying, Hey Kip, we want to bring you in. Can you start tomorrow? Yeah. When I tell you. <laughs> When I tell you, I popped a Yuli, I got off on one exit, got right back on, went to my job, was like, hey, can you cover my shift for this day, this day, this day, because I quit. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. So my boss, like I said, he was really cool about it, and I didn't want to leave them hanging, so I did make sure to get my shifts covered so that they would yeah. at least have that for the rest of the week, and they can worry about hiring someone else, because I was just a host of that job, so it wasn't like I was a server or anything like right, that, right. but... um. Yeah, he understood. He was cool about it. And the next day I started. And yeah, after that show, I went on to a plethora of shows. Snowfall, um, Legion. Uh, I've worked on the pilot of the Abbott Elementary. Um, I was on Lakers season one. I've done a lot of those um, shows as an office PA. Actually, Lakers, I was a production secretary, which is great because I got to finally move up. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been an interesting journey to say the least. Um, well, yeah, I was like, I want to... I want to hold on there for a second because this is incredible that it's like it's like you're just following the breadcrumbs and one thing leads to the next and I love that so much of it because we always hear like it's about who you know in LA right but even your story it was very much like this person introduced me to this job and this person helped me apply to this job and this person said I was right for this thing and it really was like all of these connections you were making and um I don't know if I have a question in there, but I definitely just wanted to point it out that like, does, is that how it's felt that, or how you would recommend to someone to even get into PA where it's like, it really is kind of more of a word of mouth. Cause I've asked some other PAs too. And I'm like, is there a website you like go to, to apply? Mm -hmm. And people are like, no, that makes you look green. And so anyways, just your thoughts on, on that and kind of getting your foot in the door. Hmm. Okay. That's a really great question. Um, hmm. See, okay, so let me go back to the beginning because I, that, there's a point where I referenced that I wanted to go into the office because I wanted to be a writer, and that was my easiest way to get into that route because I, I like a lot of other people, I don't have the connections or the money or the history of having someone that could just be like, hey, put this guy here. Yeah. And so I looked into those programs, you know, those websites like Staff Me Up, and even people are saying you need to use your LinkedIn, and I was doing that, but I could not get any work. I'd apply to those jobs religiously and never hear back. Okay. And so I'm like, well, what's the point of posting? And then you realize most of the time when they post these jobs, spoiler alert, 
don't come for me when I say this. They've already hired who they're going to hire. Mm. They're just legally required mm. to put those out there because that's what it's supposed to be. So when you're applying to these jobs, because, okay, so let me give you another example. What I realize is that we have a, in, the, in the office, for TV shows at least, you have your PAs, then you have your production secretary, if that show allows it. A lot of shows don't because of budget or whatever. Yeah. And they just have their PAs do the job, which is totally fine. Um, and then you have your APOC, which is your assistant production coordinator. And then above your uh, APLC is your production coordinator. And what production coordinators do, they're in the union. So if they're looking for office PAs or somebody, they'll blast out an email through their union to say, we're looking for such and such. Can you give us recommendations? Those are the people that they hire, not the people that apply on Staff Me Up. So how do you, now, there have been, how do you get on that I'm radar sorry. then? Well, that's you have to work. You have to find somebody who knows someone who can get you in there. But you need to this, know someone who knows someone who knows someone. Right, right. I say all this to say, in my experience, those things have not worked for me, the staff me ups or the LinkedIn. But I do know a lot of people who have had staff me up and LinkedIn work for okay. them. My best advice to anybody who's trying to break into the industry is that no avenue is the right or the wrong avenue. You have to just put yourself out there and see whatever opens the door, that's the way you go. Yeah. Um, so that that would be my advice because I, I that's exactly what I did. I did it all. I, I applied there. I finally got someone who knew me from college that was like, okay, I can really vouch for this guy because I know his work ethic. I know that he is capable of learning at a high paced level. And I know that he's not going to tarnish my reputation in this industry. Yeah. Well, can you so, go yeah. into, cause I know you said like, if, if you wanted the more creative route or whatever. So like when you, when you look at in terms of career trajectory, if you're so is it if you're going into being an office PA that's kind of the route to become a producer and a set PA is like the route to become more of a director or like what what are the routes where is there a hierarchy that you should be in this place if you're trying to get to this place mm -hmm. once again that's a great question and my answer to that Kaylin is that there is no you do this to get to this place and you do this to get to that place because there's no blueprint for this industry and I feel like that's what a lot of us struggle with because there's not like you do this and you'll get here. Yeah. Um, you could be a set PA one day and then the next day you're an assistant director. I mean, that's not true because you have to go to the union, but I'm just saying, hypothetically speaking, things can happen any day to anybody for any reason. We just, that's out of our control. Um, I will say that the advice that I was given was because at the time I wanted to fo solely focus on writing and when you're an office PA, you are next to the writers yeah. or you're dealing with the writers in some capacity more than someone who is on set that is at a lower position. So I had a better chance of meeting a writer or meeting the team, introducing myself, trying to get down there than I would if I was on set with no connections to them at all. Right. So, so that was my goal. And they actually helped out because on The Rookie, I made it my goal to say, listen, I know that I'm an office PA and I'm going to do my job, but I am also here if, if the writer's PA needs a break. And shout out to Rob Mazza. I love him. He would take, uh, he had to do things and leave the office. Sometimes he would say, yeah, my boy Kip is going to cover my desk. Send me down to the writer's room. Yes. I got to know all the writers. So that was great. Um, so yeah, that, that, that is my advice. I think that um, when you have such a, a huge in industry where there's so many different pieces and moving parts and positions and all sorts of connections, you have to just figure out on your own time, whatever you're doing, do I feel like this can get me to where I want to go? Well, I also want to pull out something from what you just said where you let them know, like, hey, I am here for this job, but this is where I want to get to go. So if there's something else that I can be doing to help you guys out and it kind of correlates with this, like, let me know. Like, it's, it's kind of just 
I just wanted to tease that out for people of like, you have to let people know what you came here to do. Otherwise they can't Absolutely. be like, Oh, I'm thinking of Kip for writing. Cause they don't know. Right. Right. And that was one thing that I was always taught by my mentors saying, if people don't know what you want to do, how are they going to help you out? If you don't speak up and tell people what you want. And now there's a time and place for everything. Like I'm not going to go to the head of the producer and be like, Hey man, I want to be a director. Can you help me out <laughs> on the first day? No, but I can go to my boss and say, listen, I, uh, I'm here because I want to learn more about the industry, but at the trajectory of my career, I want to be a writer. I want to have the journey into a writer. I want to be able to work on these shows, start off as a staff writer, wherever I can start at, but I want to be a writer. Yeah. And um, I think that was important because they realized that, yeah, he's really passionate about that. And if your boss likes you, um, they will help you. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I don't think that my boss disliked me, but I don't think that uh, they were too fond of me. And... I don't want to go into too many details sure, on that sure. because that's a whole nother story for another day. <laughs> but um, what was important is that the right people that I wanted to connect with liked me enough to have power to say, hey, we want him down here and you have to switch him out for today. So that was good on that part. But um, I think for the most part, it's just about, you know, milking those connections and those relationships because that's what's going to get you ultimately to the next thing. I mean, I've seen people walk into a production office with no experience, right. but their dad goes golfing with the producer and they're like, okay, here, sit him at this desk, going to be a PA. And some of them put in the work and they do well and they go on and do have great careers and some of them don't do shit. And it just frustrates you because you're like, you're not working and I have to pick up your slack and yet I'm not advancing, oh, but you are. No. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a lot of that. But um, overall, it's like I said, it's all about you know, putting yourself out there and knowing when and when not to move or when to strike. Because, like, I like to look at it as a game. Yeah. You have your chess pieces, you have to learn how to play the game, and you have to learn how to move where you're supposed to move at the right time. And it takes time to do that. And some people get it really quickly, some people get it later, some people win at the top and then fizzle out the bottom. So everybody's <laughs> journey is different, you know? So Well, while, while you've done all this work, especially, like, the office PA work, is there anything that you took away from, like, a managerial perspective or um, like organizationally that you now take into your own projects when you're making them? Oh, absolutely. So even before coming to LA, I, when I was in college, I started off as a director. I wanted like being a director has always been a dream of mine, but I kind of put that dream aside because I let a lot of people influence me to say that a director is hard, which it is, but you know, I allow other voices to get in my head and to, drive me off the director's path. So now that I've gone back to it, I'm, I'm finding myself learning how to be a good director. Mm -hmm. But back in the day, when I was, back in the day, a few years ago when I was Eight in college. Eight years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I was in college, my professor pulled me aside. I remember my first semester of directing one. And he goes, hey, I know that you want to be a director, but I see you as a producer. I don't see you as a director, I see you as a producer. He just kept drilling it into my head hmm. that I did production, producing and screenwriting. So while in school, they helped me a lot with my managerial skills and organizational skills and, you know, also like learning other different departments like ADing, how to create a, a, a call sheet. Now, on the level of TV shows and stuff, it's a very intricate technique that I have not learned or had the experience to learn. I kind of don't want to <laughs> because I've seen the ADs do it. Yeah. However, I know enough to have a call sheet, professional call sheet out for whatever project I'm doing if I want that at the time. Um, but then when I was working as an office PA, I think the most important thing that I learned is just how to navigate those relationships and how to learn about the industry from the standpoint of it is a business first for a lot of people. Yeah. And 
I think that was the most difficult thing for me to learn because I'm such a creative. I love storytelling. I love creating these stories and these characters and these dynamic worlds, and I love to have the opportunity to show those. But when you're working in the industry, people only care about what you can do for this show and how you get that show together. So I really learned the valuables of creating something and keeping the momentum to keep it going and to see it through fruition from pre-production all the way through to post-production, mm. which was amazing for me to see how that worked. And, and it's always different via different shows. One show can operate one way because it works for them, and another show can do it the complete opposite way. And you're thinking, oh, this is wrong. I, w- I was taught this way on the other show, so this is wrong. And looking at you like, dude, this is our show. Shut the hell up. Just do what we say. <laughs> so it, you learn that it's not just one way to do things. It's yeah. about what works for whatever you're on and how they want to do it. So, yeah. Interesting. Well, getting into now you are making your own films. Um, mm-hmm. Well, is there a specific, like, you know, you've talked about wanting to be an agent or manager, or starting out wanting to be a director, and then you were talking about wanting to be a writer. Is there a specific one that pops up for you now, or is it like the whole package with indie filmmaking? What What does Kip want to do? Oh, that's a great question. That's a really, really great question. Um, what does Kip want to do? Kip wants to, first of all, I have my own production company, Kip and It Real Productions. So lifelong, or not even lifelong, but like a longer journey that I have or a, a, a goal that I have is to have a production company where they, I can, when I'm not directing or writing something, I can have people come in through my production company and we produce their movies or their projects because we have that, you know, level of professionalism. We have that level of um, where people can come to us and do that. Yeah. So that's my long-term goal. But yeah, I mean, I'm a director-writer. Like, I write things and a lot of the stuff that I realized that I write comes from my personal experience. So for me, and I know they, and I, and this is one of those things too, as a writer, you have to, they say the phrase, you have to kill your, your babies or whatever, because people will take your scripts and do whatever they want with them. And that's totally fine. Um, you just learn to deal with that. But for me, I feel like as a writer, I have to stand up. Like when you watch something that I've written, you know, that's a Kip Knight film, or you know, that's a Kip Knight wrote this. I don't want to just write something that is generic or, Whatever, and I'm learning that for me personally, I just can't see anybody being able to tell that story because I look at these people and I don't see a, someone who has the same experiences that I do. Yeah, well, now that so, you've been making yeah. films and you've been writing, what ha, have you seen your voice kind of emerge? Like, what does make a Kip Knight film, do you think? Uh, so this is where the conversation gets to be a little bit more tricky because... There are a lot of moving parts that go into creating a film, and you know this as well as an actress, and now you get more into the filmmaking side of it. So when you don't have certain resources, you have to augment or you have to figure out how to adjust what you don't have, right? Yeah. And sometimes um, a lot of us aren't fortunate enough to have a friend who will you know, shoot your film on an Alexa Mini for free or will give you a location for free or will you know, give you some sort of service so you're not having to come out of pocket to pay for things. And when you don't have the funds to do it, you have to figure out how can I make this film that I'm so passionate about without having the resources that's needed to make this film be as great as I think it could be. Yeah. And what I've learned is that sometimes um, I get so wrapped up in the idea of like, okay, I need to create something. And I see so many people creating things and I get so like, okay, they're creating things and it looks great and they're getting it done, so I need to create something. <laughs> And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this really great script, and I love it. People love it. And I'm like, okay, now what are we going to shoot with? 
oh, okay, uh, well, I have a black magic we can use that. That's totally fine. Who's going to shoot it? I don't know. I can't afford a DP, so I have to shoot it. I'm not a DP by nature. I'm not a technical person at all. Like, if you, it's funny because people will say, oh, well, I want, I, it hurt you shot this. Can you shoot something for me? I say no. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I, I can do it for myself because if I make a mistake on something that I've done, right. then it's on me. But if I make a mistake on something that you've asked me to do, that's, that, that's just the worst feeling ever. But um, I, I just, I, that's how I go into it. I tried to really just create things. And then I realized that I needed to take, take a step back, which I am right now taking a step back and just really figuring out how can I really just focus slowly and get everything together that I possibly can to make something because I know that I have the talent and I know that I have the skill. I just need to be able to bring it together to where it's shown to where the people can say, Oh, I like this because this guy did this, you know, the way that I can connect to it. Yeah. So I think right now I'm in a, I'm in a period of figuring out how to achieve that with what I have and not worry about what I don't have. Because mm. a lot of us get like that, you know, mm-hmm. we'll see these people, we see, you know, we have friends too. You and I have a, yeah. a similar friend group. So we'll see them post all these great steals and you see all this grand equipment, all these people helping out. And then you text them like, how did you do this? And they'll say, oh, you know, we had this friend help out, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what that's like. Okay, well, never mind. I'll figure it out some other way. But here's the thing. <laughs> I want anyone listening. That's how I feel about you, Kip. Like, you are making it happen, too. This guy cranks out film after film after film. And I realize what you're saying is that I know you do. You wear a lot of the hats yourself or you're funding out of pocket. But but you are finding ways to get it done. And, and you're certainly someone that I admire very much for that. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. No, I agree. I think... Um, and I think this goes back to your question earlier. What did I learn from being an office PA and things like that? I learned how to get shit done because you have to. Yeah. If you can't get shit done, people are not going to hire you. They're not going to want to work with you. So at the least, I know how to get it done. Now that I got that down packed, I want to know how do I get it done on the level of what I want it to be as the Kip Knight, the director and the writer of this project, right? Um, but no, I, I think that a lot of people listening to should, um, really just, Focus on what you can control because a lot of things are out of our control and a lot of things are a lot more difficult than what we expect it to be. Yeah. And sometimes that discourages us a lot. And with this whole social media and because I do that, I am so guilty of this, Caitlin. I will go on Instagram and I'll be so excited. I'm like, I'm going to write today. And I mind you, I haven't written it like four months because I've just been putting film off to the side just because of a lot of other things outside of film itself. Yeah. But I'm like, today's the day I'm going to write. I got this idea that I've been sitting in the back of my head. It keeps popping up. I'm going to write it. I'm going to get it done. And I go look on Facebook or Instagram and I'm scrolling and I see someone post and I'm happy for them. Don't get me wrong. I love to see people creating and doing great things. And I'm just like, oh, I wonder how they did this. And I'm looking and I'm looking. And I'm like, oh, they did. They had this. They had that. They had this. This. And I'm like, the okay. comparison. Well, I'm just gonna go. I'm just, yeah. I am just going to sit down and uh, do something else. <laughs> so uh, do not allow yourself. And it's really hard because I'm still working on it. I've been a hypocrite here, but we have to learn to not allow ourselves to compare to what other people are doing because everybody's journey is different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the more that I'm practicing and focusing on that, I'm in this position where now I'm learning how to refocus and reshift and regroup so that when I return to the film that I want to make, I'm able to really give it my all and not allow past experiences to, I guess, keep me from moving forward or make me afraid to take the step because a lot of us, myself included, have been afraid 
to make the step with the fear of failing again. Yeah. And somebody, I don't know who it was, you guys can find it later, but somebody said, you only fail when you don't keep trying. And yeah. I'm like, well, I guess I got to keep trying then. Exactly. Or Leah said it. Oh, no, Leah said, if at first you don't succeed, <laughs> try and try again. Dust yourself off and try again. That's it. Yep. And then we play the music right here. No, she... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. I can't, I can't afford to license that. <laughs> right. I said, no, I <laughs> Y'all use your imagination. Um... Right, right. Or you can do it on TikTok. You know, TikTok, they can't do anything on TikTok. Oh, I don't have a TikTok. I'm an old lady. Okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, um, but from the films, I know you've been playing with some different genres and things that you're excited about, but mm. I do want to, I know you and your short films for the horror genre. So I want to ask you a little bit about that, if that's okay. Um, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> well, first off, why horror? And what makes a good horror film? Oof, oof, Okay. You know, this is like when you go to a film school and everybody asks, what's your favorite movie? And you're looking like, damn, I don't know. I, just like, I know, I should ask something okay, different. Uh, These are very broad-based, <laughs> vague. No, this is a great question. No, it's actually a really great question. It's just Let me just think about this for a second. Okay, okay, the first part, what got me into horror? Yeah. So, <laughs> when I was younger, um, I'm from Memphis. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. I grew up in a Whitehaven area, and that's not the most safest area. I guess it's not the safest area in Memphis. It's not the worst, but it's not the safest either. Um, and so life to me was kind of like a horror movie because there would be so many moments of fear of where not to go, not to say the wrong thing. Will something happen today? Just the way that the environment was, unfortunately. So I drew, I guess I, I drew close to horror films because I was sneaking and watched them when I was a kid because I wasn't allowed. So I was sneaking and watched them. And I don't know, it was something about the creativity of seeing that even as a kid that just fascinated me and how they were able to create these stories. And I was never afraid of them because I'm like, okay, Freddy Krueger, we know that's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Michael Myers, sure, he's, he's messing with the white people. I'm good over there. <laughs> and then I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going to Camp Crystal Lake, so Jason can, you know, he, he can have it. But um, I said that to say I connected with these characters and these stories and these movies because they were so creative and it took something... Um, and I noticed at a very young age, too, that they were trying to say something about our society with the use of these horror icons, whatever. And so for me, I connected to that. Um, and I didn't realize that at the time is what it was. I just thought I liked scary movies. I mean, I would even go to the movies with my mom. I was like, <laughs> it said making her go see all these horror movies. And she's just me and her going to see them. I never realized how much of an impact it was. She was like, are you okay? Something wrong with you? Do we need to have a talk? I'm like, maybe. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, that, that was uh, what sparked it. And then I think, what makes a great horror film? Hmm. Horror is so elevated now. Yeah. Let's say that. There are so many horror films that have come out that have had so many strong storylines that center around some sort of social or some sort of issue. Like The Babadook is about family and the mother or whatever, having that. And then you have, like, Get Out, which is about, you know, the racism and all that type of stuff. And then he's even had a little dig at interracial dating, which is kind of interesting. But then you have all these horror films who are trying to say these things, mm-hmm. and they're presenting it in a horror, horror element because it makes people wake up and see it, you know. Mm-hmm. You could preach something all day, like, oh, this is terrifying. Oh, you know, we need to care about the homeless people. But then no one listens. But if you put them in a horror movie and they're zombies, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, we care about this because now it's a heightened fear for us. Right. 
So that's one of the things I love about horror films. I think that in today's climate, that for me is what makes a good horror film. But sometimes I just want to go to a theater and watch a shitty horror movie just because I want to have a good time. <laughs> like, I don't care about, sometimes like these stories get so convoluted mm. that I just want to go sit down and watch a movie and just like, okay, this is cool. Um, but there's so many different types, because horror in itself is a genre, but there are also so many subgenres in that genre. Yeah. Because you have horror comedy, horror action, you have parody horror, you have so many subgenres that make this big genre what it is today, you know? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I like to say, if you're gonna do horror, the horror element happens in post. Mm. Because when you're shooting on set, like, a lot of it is you have to imagine the situation. You have to put yourself in the shoes and seeing the scene play out because you don't have, obviously there's no ghosts, there's no demons, there's no, you know, man, well there could be a man in the mask chasing you which makes it more realistic, but um, none of this is happening for real. So you have to have some sort of an imagination of where it's gonna go. Yeah. And a lot of the times when you watch behind the scenes of horror movies, you're looking at, this is ridiculous. I know. But then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then when you go to post and they add the music and they add this, you're like, oh, wait a minute, this oh. is scary. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Do you yeah, think that, that means that horror needs a lot more um, like planning and pre-production to make sure the shots are right so that you get the timing needed for the scares? I think that's with any genre, but I will say specifically horror and comedy, mm. if you don't have those beats where they need to be and they're figured out and they're strong, you lose your audience. Yeah. And people don't care and it's not going to work. Um, and like I said, nowadays, a lot of horror films are really not even horror anymore. They're drama with horror elements. I mean, mm. look at Parasite. Mm. Drama with, with horror elements. I even think Pearl is a drama with horror elements because it was about a girl who was trapped in her home feeling like she wanted to explore the world and she had this gift of being an entertainer and the world dropped on her face and they told her you're not good enough and then she went psycho. Hmm. So I think a lot of that is what we're getting nowadays. We're getting a lot of blending and I, and I love that because for me, that's what, I, what drew, me, drew me to the genre in the first place is taking a situation that is something that could be traumatic or dramatic for people and adding that horror element to elevate and boost that moment of fear for your audience. That to me is what makes a, a great horror film. Was there something socially that you're trying to get across with your film so far? Um, well, I mean, the, the most obvious would be skin color, but you know, we leave that to Jordan Peele now. But, you know, this is something I wanna talk about too. Um, when you have things that revolve around social issues, it, at least in my experience or from, what I, from my perspective, is that when one person gets the okay and they do it and it's successful, the studios want that same formula mm -hmm. because they don't want to try anything new because they don't know if it's going to be successful. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of people falling into the line of like, well, if you try to do something that has social awareness about race or about, you know, whatever, and you're a person of color, they're going to automatically say, are you trying to be like Jordan Peele? Mm -hmm. Or are oh, you trying to be like, you know, such and such and such and such. There's not, until you do something that is something that's different or that has not been seen that does well, then you're just recycling these same storylines over and over and over again. I mean, like you have to think about like when Paranormal Activity came out, that was a huge deal because since 
the Blair Witch, we haven't had a found footage film that terrified people like that. I don't honestly, it wasn't scary to me, but hey, to each their own, you know. <laughs> um, but that sparked a revolution of all of these found footage films that were trying to follow in his footsteps, but none of them were able to reach the level of success as paranormal activity because we already had paranormal activity. So what was the next, back, next, next best thing was The Conjuring, which is reintroducing the whole religious demon entity thing, which we used to have with the exorcism stuff. So now we have The Conjuring coming and do it, and now all of these films that are out now are just like that, mm -hmm. and everything is, you know, unless they have a, a different edge to them, they quite often, people confuse, like, is this the same universe? And it doesn't help when you have the same actor playing two characters that mimic each other, so... Um, <laughs> Insidious. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Like, I don't know enough about scary movies to follow everything, yeah. but you know. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Uh, Genre-wise, good, good. I want to. I want to ask about like the production side of things, though, um, okay. because you have been making your own films. And we talked a little bit about like you know being resourceful and working with what you have or you're paying out of pocket is there a certain are you writing kind of to your limitations or do you just write and then try to figure it out later mm -hmm. if that makes sense um no it makes sense once again that's a great question um now where i am my first draft is always what i want it to be because i find that if i try to fine tune and say well i don't have this i don't have that i don't have this I start to just like get really paranoid and panic in and then it never gets written. Your creativity just shuts down yeah. if you're like, right, no, right. no. Right. So if my first draft is whatever I want it to be and I get it all out, then I go back and I flesh it out. I'm like, okay, what do I have for this? What can work for this? Or do I have access to this? Can I get access to this? Um, is it possible to spend money on this? You know, those are the things I ask myself. And that, once again, goes back to your question earlier on, is how did, you know, working in the office help me out? I wear multiple hats even when writing. I have my, strictly my first draft is creative for writing. And then when I go back and read it, a producer hat is on. How can I do this? Because I've had to produce my own things. Mm -hmm. And then once I get through that, now my director hat is on. Like, how can I direct this? And sometimes when I don't have the resources to get someone to do the other stuff, my director has to get taken off and I have to be the cinematography man. Like, how do I shoot this? Oh my God, <laughs> flames everywhere. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's, uh, that's how that works for me when I write these stories. Okay, sorry. My brain, you said cinematographer and now I've gone off and I have to ask. Um, I'm struggling with, well, I've only made films in a very short time period with these challenges. Mm -hmm. and But I feel like I don't trust myself to write something with a whole lot of action because I, I don't know that I understand the working relationship with the cinematographer and how much time they need to set up each shot. Like I'm always blown away by like how much time it takes to set up for a shot. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> We're just cutting mm -hmm. it over the shoulder, you know? And I know like I also want it to look good and be correct and match and everything. But um, the question somewhere is something like, how do you write in action? Or like you said, you put on your cinematographer hat, like how are you thinking about that? Or, or do you just not think about that? And then I could leave it up to the cinematographer. You know, like how, if you're writing yes. and directing both, how do you make sure that 
you're doing something feasible or how do you know how long something will take because I feel like production always takes longer than I realize it will or I'm afraid that it'll take longer than I realize it will. Mm -hmm. You kind of dived, you kind of touched on a bunch of different things. Um, director, cinematographer relationship, um, ADN scheduling, figuring out the, all that type of thing and just overall creative process. That's how you know I have no idea what I'm talking about because I hit too many things at no, once. You, you know, no, you, you actually do. You actually do. This is, where this is where it starts. You know you have the questions. You know what you're trying to say. You just don't know how to say it just per, per se. But you're on the road mm. and that shows that you know what you're doing and it just only goes from there. But um, to go back to that, I think when you are doing competitions and these contests that take so long, you don't have the luxury of having those pre-production meetings with your DP to talk about, um, you know, scene one at the house. Let's talk about, let's break it down. Um, and oftentimes, this is just something coming from the indie world and working as a director. There have been times where I have a short that I want to shoot, I work with the DP, and because they're doing a, a favor or because, and it's not to say that they don't want to help you because they're great DPs, but these guys are getting jobs left and right. So they don't have time to sit down and break down the script with you unless they have free time and that they do ask to be really quickly. Mm. So oftentimes I realize that it's the director's responsibility to come up with the shot list, to figure out what type of shots they want. And sometimes when you don't have the knowledge or the experience of working with cinematographers to know like, okay, I want an over the shoulder shot of this person talking to this other guy. But then you don't factor in, okay, what do you want the lighting to be like? Is it moody? Is it overhead lighting? Do we want to have something undercut in the eyes? Is it a horror feel? Do we want color? Do we want this? But even with just a plain three simple point light system, you still have to set that up and it takes a lot of time. But that you won't know that unless you have the experience of doing it over and over again with someone. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the proper pre-production because you couldn't afford to, their time for that matter, then it's just as the same as going into a contest where you have three days to make something and you have one day with your DP to do whatever you got to do and then the rest is shooting. Mm -hmm. So I think um, to answer that question, Caitlin, the best thing for you to do and to not be afraid of it is to really just set yourself up to have that time with whoever you're working with to really break down that script and get what you guys need. So when you go on set, because even when you're on set, they're going to be tweaks because things happen. Yeah. That's just, that's life. But if you take the time out, one of my... I guess teachers or deans in my high school, I think the guy's deceased now, rest in peace, but he would always say um, the five P's, uh, proper preparation prevents poor performance. Mm. And so if you take the time to prioritize and pre-prepare for the shoot and you, you know, you're talking to the departments or whoever you have, um, then that makes it easier going into set. But there are a lot of other factors that we, it, it, it's one of those things where there's a lot of other factors that go into it because sometimes when you're working on your own project, you don't have money. You don't know where your location is. You can't talk to your DP and say, I want this shot, I want this lighting because hypothetically, we don't know where we're shooting at. So yes, we can have a conversation about it and we can be on the same page of what we want initially. But if we get a location with a bunch of white walls, this is going to change dramatically because we don't have the production value of a, a location that we want it. So a lot of that factors into the on-set thing, mm. right? And I think a lot of people forget that and they become overwhelmed because they think, I need to know this, 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 and this. When the basics of it, you need to just make sure that you have your location 
or whatever you want. And then when you have that, it's up to you to try to get it together and talk to the DP or your team. Now, in my case, when I am filming something on my own, mm-hmm. um, I will purposely make it as simple as possible because I know somewhere if I go too much, I'm going to fuck it up. I'm going to fuck it up your daughter. <laughs> Because I'm not, I'm not a DP. I'm not a DP. So, for example, you remember the short that uh, you came Come through? Come play with you, me. Uh, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'm editing that, and I'm thinking, okay, yes, yeah, it's so cool. I like, I love a lot of the shots in there. But because my apartment is so small, and because of just everything, there are a lot of things that didn't work, and I'm still trying to figure out how to get it. But one thing in particular is if I would have had someone that I could work with on the script and tell me I need to make sure that I needed something to really block out the table so where the cloths are on the floor. Yeah. And then I needed to be further away to get the right angle to make it work. Mm. Then that shot on the table worked because now I'm left with a shot where I see you in the corner of your camera no. and I see the makeup to you behind. Why? So I have to figure out. <laughs> but that's because I was, that's because I'm, when I'm in that zone, I'm just worried about just the, is the shot in focus. That's my thing. Is like, is it in focus? Is it in focus? And I'm not paying attention to because it's dark. You know, I'm not paying attention to what's going on. I'm just like, oh, it's in focus. Great. So, um, yeah, when I'm writing and I'm, I know I have to shoot something, I will purposely make it as dull and as plain as possible, just because I want to be able to get it done. That's why you said I should um, be, I should be an AD because I'd be like, get out of the frame. You move that cap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, um, but I don't think you should be overwhelmed. I think the best advice I can give you is um, allow yourself to do it because if you just keep saying, I don't want to do this or I'm afraid of this, you're going to keep waiting. And then when the opportunity comes and you need to have a certain level of professionalism or to be able to get a certain level of things done, you're going to go in terrified. Yeah. But if you give yourself now the time to do it and learn and learn what works for you and figuring out how things go, when you get to that project, it's going to be like, oh, this is easy. I don't know what I'm doing. Because then those problems that come up, you're going to have to be... Because filmmaking is literally problem solving. Yeah. Because the problems just keep on coming and they don't stop. Just keep on coming. (laughs) They do not stop. (laughs) Um, Well, okay. The the uncomfy questions. What... How much are you spending out of pocket per short film, usually? Hmm. Depends on the... See, you're asking the right questions. The issue is that every situation is different. Sure. Um, so the last film that I did, which was for CFC, um, Project Gloria, um, that didn't cost anything because Gloria, we used her apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, that's, what, I, what I spent money on was makeup. Yeah. Crafty. Um, food which is only for one day because we got the gift card from CFC from Takaya, which is great. Nice. Um, and then I believe we spent money on wardrobe, but we sent that back and got our money back. The true indie filmmaking and, way. Right. And here's a heads up for anybody who has to go out. If your makeup artist is busy and you have to go out and buy makeup supplies, they do not give refunds. They give store credit. So if you don't use makeup and you're paying for it out of pocket and you're thinking, I'm going to just go and return this, no, you're going to get store credit. It's going to go Think back to your makeup again. artist's account. So just be aware of that, that that's a purchase that you're probably going to have to make permanent. It's not something that you can just send back. Hmm. So that was what that was. So that was a little bit more easier accessible. And I believe that's because CFC set up that way. 
But when we go back to, let's say, um, come play with me, right? Yeah. I spent money on the doll. I spent money on food. And I spent money on some a few decorations. Because once again, that was your apartment. Myself, that was you being my a apartment. DP. DP, director, writer, producer, editor, <laughs> all of the above. So, and then um, I paid for makeup for that. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. It's, um, I've noticed you, you will invest for makeup artists. Is that, is there a reason for that as opposed to having like an actress bring their own makeup? Or I'm just curious. I mean, that one obviously had a specific look, but. Right. Well, when we talk about the, the horror genre, a lot of it is special effects and a lot of it is that. So makeup, I feel like that's a necessity for, especially if you have someone who is a, a demon, you need to have a demon look and yeah, I can go put white makeup on you and do little lines, but <laughs> I'm going to look horrible because I know what I'm doing. Um, so I, I would, I would always spend money on what was a necessity. Gotcha. Um, in my head, for me, anything that I do, because most of the times I'm reaching out to friends asking if they would like to help me with something or asking if they could help me. So most of the time I am making sure that people are fed well mm. and that the necessities are paid for. So it's food, makeup, and if it's sound, sound, uh, because you need important sound. But for the most part, if it's just two people on a date and we're shooting a scene, I'm probably going to ask the actress to come makeup ready. Yeah. In fact, I did that. There's this film that's in post right now um, that I shot and directed. Um, and it's called Daddy. And for that, I had our actors come makeup ready because I didn't have a makeup artist because all of the money that I spent was on sound and lenses. And by the time you spend money on that stuff, it's like, okay, well, either we get, we get fed or... <laughs> Y'all can <laughs> look pretty or be fed. No. <laughs> so uh, I opted to feed my crew uh, because I wanted people to be happy because we were shooting for free. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's always yeah. a really nice gesture to make sure that everyone's got lunch, got crafty. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things I learned in film school, like, you know, and then also, too, can we I think another important thing what I've learned, too, is. When you go to film school that you're on set, a lot of these people who work in the industry come from privilege and I'm not talking about like, you know, racial privilege. I'm just talking about class privilege and. For me, I grew up in an environment where if we didn't have money to eat, we found what we could from scraps. So that's how my mind operates because if I don't have, if I have $5, that's going to last me a week because I'm going to figure out how to do it. Mm. But most of the people in this industry have never had to deal with that. And we saw the height of that during the pandemic where they were all freaking out because they were losing money and everything was going away. So when you have an environment where you grew up with that as a child, you have learned your survival skills. We, we live on survival. And a lot of people don't have that. So when you go into these sets and they're expecting these, you know, I want a hot meal, I want this. Like, I have had to ingrain in my brain that that is something that is a necessity because these people have never had to struggle or have to worry about where their next meal is coming from. They've always had a meal. So, and I learned that when I was on set one time where, you know, we had rice and beans and, you know, some things like that. And I'm thinking, oh, this is great. I love this. Yeah. And people were complaining out the wazoo. And I was like, oh, my God, what is wrong with you people? Like, this is not a sufficient meal for us. I was like, oh, my goodness, this will feed my whole family. Like, what? Yeah. So um, I learned that, too. So it's just, I just think, like, if you want to have people help you out, the least that you have to do is be able to give them a meal that is of quality for them. And everything else, necessity-wise, you have to figure out what can I afford 
and when am I going to put my money that I do have towards? So that's a question that you have to ask yourself. And that could be coming from you also wearing the hat as a producer because that's how it is. Yeah. Um, when your films are done and you've edited uh -huh. them, do you, are you using them as like calling cards to get meetings or like what, what do you do with the short film once you're finished? So I, that was always the goal for me. I thought, so when I did my first short film called They're Still Here back in 2017, I thought, okay, I'm going to make this film. It's going to be great. I'm going to put it out there. People are going to watch it and they're going to want to work with me. I'm going to get this, this and that. And it did not happen like that at all. Um, we didn't get into any festivals that I wanted to get into. Um, and the couple of festivals that we did get into, we didn't win anything. So people weren't really paying attention to it. And it kind of, I guess, discouraged me for a little bit because I thought that was a, a, an example of what I was capable of. Mm. But to see that it wasn't well received at the time really just messed with my mind and my psyche a little bit. So um, I tried again and I did some festivals and then, you know, whatever it worked they, they won some awards but it was during the pandemic so you weren't really in person to meet these people so they kind of just you know i saw your film it was great thank you and that's the, the the gist of that conversation so to answer your question caitlin i don't know how to use my films to to make meetings or to present myself with meetings because i've never had the opportunity yeah and i think that's one of the reasons why i feel like when so many people say oh kip you make so many things you do so many projects i'm like yeah i do but like none of this is getting me where i want to be right now so in my head i'm thinking i'm not doing something right so therefore i have to figure out how can i get a product that will make people enticed enough to say okay let's bring this guy in for a meeting hmm. let's try to get him some representation so um i'm still figuring it out myself yeah so if anybody has answers you know <laughs> that'd be great <laughs> yeah well i mean it's at least practice right you're because yeah. you've got to put in the reps to know how to get the scripts written and get stories that make sense all the way through. And, and so I hope you at least don't feel like it's been a, a waste or anything. Um, but do you feel like features are next or like keep doing the shorts till you get one that could hit and open these doors or kind of what's what's your feel on that, you think? So there's this thing called a comfort zone, Caitlin. <laughs> <laughs> And um, honestly, I am so terrified of doing a feature. And the reason why I'm terrified is because I haven't had a successful short in my eye yeah. yet. And everyone, but then like I see people who have never had experience on set make a feature. I'm like, how are you doing this? Yeah. Like, so I'm like, am I making the wrong mistake? Am I holding myself back? Am I my own character's destruction? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Tap on the mic for that, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the logical answer would be the feature would be next, and it should be, uh, because I've done so many shorts. I think I've done 10 shorts so far. Um, various levels of budgets, um, and, you know, they're complete. So I can say that I know successfully how to, from script to screen, make a film. Yeah. I know that. I think my issue is that I want something that I put out into the world or what I'm known for. I want it to be, I, I, I don't know, maybe I have this weird thing about people going back to see something like, oh, this is terrible. This is like, and it's going to be attached to me for the rest of my life or something. Yeah. Um, but then I, rem I don't remember what filmmaker it was, but they was like, yeah, we just kept making shitty films until one of them were good enough and then we are now. Yeah. So. Well, I feel, I can't. So that's what I, th I think, yeah. I, I do 
a similar thing where I'm like, no, well, by the time I make my feature, the first feature has to be a good feature because there are all those like first time director competitions and awards. Like I can't go for that if I if it sucks. But then like the reality is most people, the first things that you're making aren't that great. But it's again that comparison game of like, no, but it has to be if if, if right. I'm going to put my name on it. If I'm going to ask people to watch it, it better be good in my eyes, you know? Right, right. So I understand no, I totally the hesitation. Yeah. But I think I think what I'm working on now, and I we've spoke about this briefly, is that, you know, horror will always be something that I love. And I will go back to horror time and time again. But for now, and I think once Daddy is released and we're finished with that, people will get to see that I'm trying to shift more into character-driven stories that are more emotionally-based and drama-based stories. Mm. Um, because I feel like there's a lot of... Uh, like, a lot of the things I write are dramas, are, you know, whether it's YA or, you know, family dramas or something like that. Like, a lot of the stuff that I do write is that. And sometimes that is included with horror. Like, I have a family drama that just happens to have the horror elements. And I realize that I want to focus more on that type of storytelling now. Mm-hmm to really just show that I'm not just one genre. I can do a lot of things. And even like, you know, dipping my hand, hand in comedy. I don't really like comedy. I enjoy comedy, but as a writer, it is so hard to translate comedy on the page. And once again, depending on where you're from, a lot of people don't, a lot of people find a lot of things differently. Different people find different things funny. Sure. And something that is hilarious to me, Kaylin, you can be like, what the fuck? This is not funny. But I'm going to laugh anyway because I love you, Kip. <laughs> so, Can't wait to hear so, this. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so I, I, I really want to just give myself the ultimate opportunity to show that I am capable of doing this and there's nothing that anyone can look at and say, oh, no, we want to go with someone else. We just want you to give us a script, we'll pay you, and then you're done. Goodbye. I want to be like, no, this guy has to direct this because he has the vision, he has the eye, he gets it done, Mm -hmm. and we want him on this. So that's my goal. That's awesome. And with, like, the production company and everything to be making more things. Yeah. Let's get you there. So what? let's talk mindset, okay? (laughs) I know... Every creative, we have our ups and downs, our moments of self-doubt and like, this isn't working, or you've said like, you know, you haven't had success with the short films that you've wanted to have, but from an outsider's perspective, it looks like you just, you're not giving up, you keep making things, and at a rate that I think is higher than most people that I see. Um, So can you speak a little to how do you get in that mindset of like, no, I'm going to keep going for this and good things will happen. And like we said at the beginning of this conversation, I'm going to meet the right people so that doors will open. I think first and foremost of anything, I pray about my next move. And I just, this is, and not to sound like a Debbie Downer or to sound, this is like, oh my God, this is so sad. Well, my mom passed from cancer. I, I took a step back from the industry because I realized that I was just a number and after losing someone so close or the last physical representation of someone close to you, a lot of things came crashing down so I questioned a lot of things. 
But one of the things I didn't question was my destiny to be a filmmaker, to be a director. So I always prayed about it. If this is for me, you'll make a way. And ways have been made. And I go back and forth with just, you know, because my, my, my big promise was always for her that we'd have this career together and that this is something that we could, you know, use to break those generational curses that we've been dealing with for so long and to just open up this new thing that I'm so passionate about. And when I lost her, I lost a lot of that passion. I'm still losing it to this day and I'm trying to figure out how to bounce back. And one of the things that keep me going and to not give up is to think, what would she want me to do, you know? Is this something that she would, if I were to quit today, would she be upset with me? Because it's something that we fought so hard for. Because like I said, I come from struggle. I come from, you know, we don't have money. We don't have the connections. I was raised by a single mother. So it was very hard for me to figure out how to go on without having that cheerleader physically in my court. And, you know, you see so many people that have all these friends that are constantly rooting for them, who support them and who are, you know, have the connection to help them. And I felt like a lot of the times I don't really have that. And it's not to say that people don't want to help me or that people aren't trying to, you know, look out for me. But a lot of the times I just don't, I feel like my entire trajectory of what I've dealt with is that I've had to have a product in order for someone to want to give to me. I had to have something that they want in order for that to happen. So I feel like a lot of that is integrated into the type of films that I make. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm on the verge of saying I want to give up, I would literally sit for like a couple of months, like literally giving up, like I am now. Like, um, I like to remind myself, you know, like what would she want? And not to the point where I'm being detrimental to myself because I have to be easy on myself and realize I've gone through a traumatic experience. And if I, I mean, I would get so upset that when I would do things and nothing would happen, I'd be so mad because I felt like I was letting her down to the point where I would get so frustrated that I didn't want to do it anymore. And I'm like, what else would you do, kid? <laughs> like, what else would you do? Like, literally during this strike, I'm trying to figure out other things that I could do, and it's like, always comes back to film. It always comes back to writing. It always comes back to some sort of creative thing that is attached to the film industry. Even with photography, that is always gonna go back to aiding in cinematography and helping out with my stories that I want to tell, because that's just how it is. So I keep asking myself, if I were to quit, seriously quit, what would I do? And I can't give you an answer, so that's why I don't quit. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of movement pieces that you have to consider as well when you're trying to get yourself out of a rut. You know, is this something that I really want to do? Am I okay with it not happening for a very long time? Um, and if you answer those questions saying that I can't, when I wake up in the morning, I think about film. If that's what you think about, then that's what you should be doing. Yeah. So that's what I that's what that that is what plays in my head when I am about to give up. And I realized, you know what, I've come this far. I've had these many opportunities to where I could have really just flatlined and just been left in the dust. But somehow, some way, I am still here pushing along. And at the end of the day, I do truly believe that I will have a career that I can look back on and be very, very proud of. So that's what keeps me going, Caitlin. <laughs> I love it. And, and um, I'm so sorry for your loss. I know we've spoken about it before. Do you feel like... Like you just said, you like legacy plays a big part of the stories that you decide to tell, and like you just said, that keeps you going. Um, legacy in what way? Like my legacy or the character's legacy? Your legacy. Oh yes, yes, um, yes, it does. Because I think about, and I think about this all the time. Like I have friends who are getting married and having kids who are living life, and 
I don't ever think I'm going to be married or live life like that. <laughs> so um, for me, everything that even when I was a kid, I remember my cousins would make fun of me because I would separate myself. Well, I wouldn't really separate myself. I was I was alienated. But in that alienation, I would find these characters through inanimate objects like markers and things like that and I would create these grand storylines where in my head I see people and I'm moving them around these little fake towns yeah. but in my cousin's head he's playing with fucking pencils what is wrong with this dude <laughs> so um, I knew at a very at a very young age that I had some sort of gift when it comes to storytelling um, I just didn't know what it, at the time what it meant and I just hold on to that because that's what I want when I look back on my life, I want that to be my legacy. Like I'm able to heal people with my with my creativity, with my movies and my films, and they can see it, and they can see themselves, and they can see like a story. Because a lot of people have unrepresented stories, even in this industry where we have so many people that are wanting to be represented by race and sexuality and all that stuff. There are still so many people who don't have their stories played on screen because it's not the topic of the day. And I want someone who looks like me to say, "Okay, I see myself." And this character, and if this character can get out of it and make something out of themselves, then maybe I can. Or maybe sometimes we just need to see, like, oh, this character was treated so awfully. Damn, I maybe I treat someone like that, so maybe I should learn how to treat people. I don't know, just things like that really yeah. is what, I'm, what I want my legacy to be. I don't want my film, people to watch my films and to really just take something back with them. That's what I want. Well, speaking of, like, underrepresented people or not seeing yourself on screen, what do you think the industry could do a better job of right now i mean i know we're also in the middle of the writers <laughs> and actors joint strike um so we could talk about that um, as well but like what what kind of stories do you think are definitely missing right now i i think when we talk about the industry and uh we talk about what type of stories they should be accepting or what type of stories that they should i guess allow to be screened in theaters um it's difficult because I think there's always this sort of like blueprint that they follow, right? Mm -hmm. So if we look at some films that have come out recently that have kind of been not the norm but have done well. Like this, the last year it was Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which was a beautiful film starring a fully Asian cast. A few years ago, we wouldn't have had that film because it would have been very stereotypical and very, you know, non-authentic. But that film doing so well opened up doors for something like Joyride, mm -hmm. which is now greatly received because it's another all Asian-led film. And it's like those type of things, once one does it, they want to follow the blueprint of having another do it. And I think that what the industry just needs to do is just make films that tell good stories and just not worry about, oh, we have to see this minority film do well first before we let this minority film do well. Or we need to let this all-female-led film do well before we let this all-female-led film do well. Right. I think that's the problem. I think that we're too focused on, you know, whose story is being told instead of what are the good stories. If you, if you read something and it makes you feel something and it makes you, it, it moves you, then it should be good enough for you to give it a chance. It shouldn't be, oh, well, this only has three black people in there, so we're not gonna we're we're not gonna screen that. We need to add more white people in that, or blah blah blah, reverse it. I just feel like it's just too much of like you know, I'm gonna hit this demographic, hit this demographic, <laughs> this target, this target, and that's how it is right now. And I feel like so many writers are having to adjust to their stories because they know I want it this way, but they're probably not gonna like it. So I have to have, add this character who has no business being in the story, <laughs> but here it is. Right. So I feel like once we get to that point where we're getting past these, you know, 
demographical targets and we're able to just tell great stories that happen to have an all Asian cast or happen to have a mixed race right. cast or happen to have an all female cast, then that's what we're winning in the industry. Yeah. But I hope this strike allows that, you know, honestly, because everything now in this industry has been, for the past 10, 15 years, has been big tentpole movies. Right. And I'm just hoping that this strike allows for room for more indie projects to come up and so we can see the, the, you know, what really got a lot of us into cinema in the first place, which was those great stories that were being seen on the screen. You know? Yeah, I, I want to, I want to talk more about that because I saw a little snippet of an of a Matt Damon interview where he was talking about, I think it was on Hot Ones, but I just saw the snippet. I haven't seen the whole episode yet. Um, but he was talking about how one of the reasons you have production companies or studios will only bet on those well-known IP movies is because, and like not do, you know, the movies that we loved in the 90s kind of thing um, are because they're not able to make mo- like make money back in the same way since DVDs aren't a big chunk of the money that's coming back in. It's like you have to make it all in theaters or all in release or then streaming. But then there's like, you know, now we're doing the strike with the no residuals and streaming and everything. So I wonder if you can speak at all to, I mean, obviously studios care about making money. I would think Everyone agrees that good stories should win out, but I don't know. Again, there's a question in there somewhere about, like, why aren't those movies being made? And is it because they wouldn't make the full money back given the current, like, way the industry is set up for distribution? Or Because, you know, even... Us as consumers now, I mean, people pay very little for um, entertainment and it costs so much to make a film and people expect to Mm -hmm. be able to like watch it for free on a streaming platform kind of thing. Right. Well, I think I can't speak for the studios because they have their own formula and they do stupid, weird, (laughs) they do things their way. Uh, So I can't speak on that. But what I will say is that if we look at it, now in cinema, especially in the theaters, like when Avengers and things like that came out, you know, those are selling out billions, right? And now we have all of these people who are kind of getting over the whole superhero movie just being superhero, big ten movies. They want more substance. Yeah. That's why things like Guardians of the Galaxy was received so well because it was about a group of myth- misfits coming together and you cared about that versus them being superpowered or having abilities. And then you see it now with all these movies that come out, like The Flash Bombed. I really hope Blue Beetle does well. I really enjoy Blue Beetle. I thought it was at the core. It was a, a family movie. And the representation of that movie for Latinos and, and Latinx, whatever you want to call it, was beautiful. And I thought that it was a moving film and it did everything that it was supposed to do in terms of being enjoyed. But um, I don't know how that's going to fare with the budget that went into it. But a lot of those films go in there with $120 million plus vote uh, budget. Yeah. But then you have a lot of these indie films who come in with like $2 million, $3 million budgets and they make their money back. It's not hard for them to make their money back. So I don't think the issue is that they're worried about them making their money back. It's that they're money hungry. They want the, the billion dollar revenue. They don't really care about $30 million revenues. But if it does happen, I, I find that formula really funny because they'll tell you this film, this type of film doesn't make money. 
And then five years later, they'll greenlight an uh, indie film that had a budget of $3.3 million, and it makes $46 million. And they're like, oh my God, this is a success. We want to do more of this. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I feel like it's been proven that these films will make money. I just think that these corporations and these studios, they want more. They want to have these big extravagant movies because they have been on this formula for so long where they could make 80 plus billion dollars in these movies. I mean, like I said, you had Avengers and all those type of movies. They're still reeling in from that. So now I feel like we as moviegoers and filmmakers and, you know, content seekers, we want more. There's so much content out here, but we want things of substance. People are complaining every day, oh, I saw this movie, but it was terrible because there was no story, or I yeah. saw this and I hated it, you know? Yeah. So I feel like there's a call for that now. So, yeah. Well, I mean, I should just stop you there because that was such a nice note to end on, but I can't stop myself. <laughs> so why... <laughs> We just said it takes so many millions of dollars to get a film made. Why are, you hate to say bad scripts being produced because, I mean, I haven't gotten to a point where I've written a script of that caliber, so it's hard to, you know, I'm not trying to knock on anyone's mm -hmm. writing abilities, but you do hear people say, like, this story was awful or meaningless or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Why is it being made? I'm not talking about, well, like, you know, we all know the superhero movies are, like, in a world now that are just a money-making machine like besides that <laughs> mm -hmm. no you no, you ask you ask a good question um i think we have to realize once again this goes back to the point we made earlier that there are a lot of moving pieces when it comes to creating films you can have a great script you can have a great director but if you have a terrible studio that's putting all these restrictions on this film then when you get to the screen it's going to be awful because you can't do certain things or any one of those pieces could be moving you can have a great script the studio's on board the director sucks you can have a great, uh, terrible script, a great director, studios on board, great movie. It just all depends yeah. on the formula. There's not one, there's not, I don't think that these studios actually green light, a lot of them don't green light shitty scripts. What they do is when they get to seeing it being shot and they want certain things and they start to put their hands in it and then you get all these people who are in the kitchen trying to be cooks when they should just be on the outside and then you get a, a mess. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of that is a, is the reason why that's happening and, um, I feel like unless you have like a super big name as a director or a big name as a cinematographer, like if you're working on a Roger Deakins film, you're gonna do what Roger Deakins wants, so he's gonna fucking walk away. The studios can suck it, like literally. But if Joe Blow from Tennessee got a, a job as a DP on this feature and the studio's gonna want something, they're gonna say, Joe Blow, do what we say, or we're gonna hire somebody else and you're gonna do it. Even if you think it doesn't you know, help the story. So it's just a lot of factors that go into what makes a film good, what makes it bad, and a process that, you know, it, it's a blessing to really, if you think about it, Caitlin, it is a huge blessing to make a film and have it turn out and be received well because there are so many factors that go into yeah. it. Well, you can... And that's why so many people... I'm sorry, No, 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 you, you go ahead. No, I was going to say, that's why so many people, if they find, if they have success with the movie and they have a crew that they had that success with, that's why so many people stick with their crews because they're so afraid to take chances on someone else even if they have the work ethic because they don't want it to mess up the rhythm of what they've done already. Because just taking out one person and switching them in could have a domino effect that could really mess up a Yeah, it's project. like you already know. These people work well together. And, right. And I think you can really see that in, um, isn't the show called How Movies Are Made? It's like a little docu-series or something. Mm. But it goes into like, you know, 
Jurassic Park, Back to the Future, like all these big things and just like how everything goes wrong throughout the process. And it's amazing that you get what you get at the end of the day. And then it's like, those were just the success stories. Now think about like all the other, even on our level where it's like, oh, my DP dropped out. Oh, uh, this location fell through. Um, This red didn't look right on camera. You know, it's like all these things happening to us too so it's like it doesn't matter the level it's always like a yeah everything has to come together just right kind Mm -hmm. of thing do you think based on what you just said and how the studios get their hands in everything and kind of will limit the filmmakers that way does that make you want to stay independent or would you love to direct like a studio feature or how, how do you think about that um, so ideally I love to be the type of director that if my name's attached, then they know what they're getting and it's going to be a Kip Knight film, you know, that's the goal. Yeah. But as someone who's trying to break into an industry and someone who's trying to become that director, if a studio says, I want to hire you and they're going to pay me six figures, <laughs> do it. And if they say, they say, Oh, Kip, you can't direct this this way. You have to do it. Okay. Whatever you want. It's <laughs> just the way it is. You know, like some, like, just like. You have actors who will take a role just because they want the paycheck and not because they care about the script. Mm-hmm. You have directors who will work on anything just so they can prove that they can direct and have that trajectory in their career. Like there are so many directors who start off working on unnamed pilots that never get picked up, but because they worked on it and they did well, that opened up so many doors. Do they want to do that? No, of course. If every director could go out and be like, I want to do this. Now there are some who will say, forget the studios, I'm sticking strictly with indie. And that works a lot of the times for some people, but that is a career that will, if not a lot of people get lucky enough to have their indie film be picked up, something they've already shot be picked up by a studio and then have it be, you know, distributed. Not a lot of people get lucky like that. But um, whatever opens the door to what I want long-term is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's how I answer that question for you. I love it. <laughs> Um, well, you did mention that you have been getting into photography recently, and that's what I see all over your Instagram, so I kind of want to pivot and talk about that (laughs) for a second. Um, is that just for fun, a creative outlet, or is that, like, the new service you might be offering people? It's all the above. So, actually, I started with photography, which is really funny. When I was in high school, I started with photography. I had a camera. I would take pictures and everything I just stopped mm. because once again I let people get in my head and tell me that photography wasn't a real career Man. and that I had to focus on something else which is kind of crazy people if you have something that you enjoy and that you love and you're good at it if somebody tries to stop you tell them to fuck off and Caitlin you can block that out if you want to I'm not because going to <laughs> there are so many people who will tell you what you should and shouldn't be doing just because they didn't do it themselves yeah like, I can't tell you how many times I listen to people tell me, oh, you shouldn't go to L.A. because it's not going to be good for you. It, it, you know, you're going to be struggling. Am I struggling in L.A.? Yes. But am I going anywhere? No. <laughs> so, no, it's fine. Because when I'm not struggling down the line, I'm going to look back and say, I did it. I'm not going to be like, oh, I wish I would have done it. I don't live my life with regrets yeah. or what I wish I would have done. I'm like, I'm doing it, and one day it'll pay off, and I'll be able to look back, and I can laugh and say, I did it. Like, you, you all counted me out, and I did it. But to go back to what <laughs> the question was, with photography, um, it's something I've always done, and I love photography. And I think like it's one of those things where it's more accessible to me to be creative in a way. 
because I don't want to just do, I mean, yeah, headshots and stuff are cool for money, but as you can see on my page, I like to do a little bit more of a creative shoot yeah. and have more of a creative outlet. And I think that kind of helps me when I'm not able to make a film, I'm able to do something creatively with photography. And just like with film, I have to produce a photo shoot. I don't have an art director. I don't have a makeup team ready. I don't have, um, you know, any of that other stuff, people that help you on set. Everything I do in photography, I do by myself. I build the sets. I have my backdrops. I look for connections if I want to shoot certain things. I'm like, hey, can I shoot this with you? Like my buddy who lives in the building I'm in right now had a motorcycle and I did a motorcycle shoot because he was like, I went up to him. I was like, listen, you have this motorcycle. It's just sitting here in this garage. Let me do a photo shoot. <laughs> and he was like, I'm so down. And it's just like, that's the way I live my life. It's like, I have to make my own way because no one is going to make a way for me. I've learned that since I was able to talk that nobody is going to go out of their way and do things for me. I have to do it for myself. And so that is how I look at it. And in doing photography, I, I know it just opens up so many fun things to do. I even have to shoot tomorrow that I'm doing. So it's great. That's awesome. And the pictures have <laughs> been so fun and I love the motorcycle shoot. So <laughs> yay. Glad your neighbor said yes. You want to give it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, it was fun. It was fun. It was a good time. Oh my goodness. Um, well, I'm going to ask you one more question, but before okay. I do, uh, where can people find you? Instagram, your website, all that jazz. Yes. Yeah, so I'm on Instagram. My Instagram is Kippin' It Real. That's K-I-P-P-I-N-I-T-R-E-A-L underscore. And the picture is my logo. I don't put my picture on there because I'm just not about that life. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you can see I have photography there. I also have a website, uh, Kippin' It Real. Uh, sorry, KipNightCreates.com. So you can see that that uh, right now it just has my film stuff, but I'm going to integrate my photography. Mm. And I'm also doing some new things that I want to share just yet, but just I'll share with you offline, Caitlin. And exclusive, to, okay. This, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that I'm going to be doing um, that's going to kind of do a little something different with the photography game that I'm doing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about that. And yeah, that's where you can find me. So cool. Amazing. Everybody, please go check out Kip's stuff. Connect with him. I want to ask you one more question, as this is the Hungry Artist Podcast. What is your recipe for success? Oof. What did The Rock say? It's about tribe. It's about <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I think my recipe for success is honestly never give up. Um, avoid your comfort zones, put yourself out there. You know, one thing that I do, wherever I go, I try to introduce myself to at least one person because you never know who that person is or what they could do for you and how they can help you get to somewhere that you want to be. So I say go out there, be hungry, keep going, and don't give up. That is my recipe for success. Woo! I love it so much. Thank you for this entire conversation, for your time, and for your creations, Kip. Um, I can't wait to see what you create next. Yes, thank you for having me, and I cannot wait to work with you again. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Hungry Artist Podcast. You can join the community by subscribing so you never miss an episode and following on Instagram at Hungry Artist Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. So what were your biggest takeaways from this episode? And what would you like to hear more of in the future? Until next time, stay hungry.